But anyway, today's talk is, I think, almost practically a year ago, uh, Sam, mm-hmm. Samantha, did a talk on, uh, Samantha Bilton, Sam Bilton, did a talk on gingerbread. And she mentioned at the time she was finishing up a book on saffron. And gosh, back in another lifetime, it feels like uh, we did have a talk. The Cornish Society of Chicago did a talk with us on saffron and we serve saffron buns. And to tell you how long ago it was, I don't think it was yet the year 2000. So uh, a long time ago. And unfortunately, the person who would have really been thrilled to be here today uh, went to heaven maybe about 10 years ago. So anyway, Sam, Sam Bilton is a food historian who runs the Repast Supper Club. Uh, we talked about that the last time we saw her. Uh, but these are food events with a historical theme. She's also a food and drink writer with articles appearing in magazines and online with English heritage. And she works on historical recipes, recreating them for the modern day, including an 18th century recipe for a bride cake. And she's the a member of the Guild of Food Writers. I'm sure there's other things I should have said, but, you know, Sam, you can always fill us in. So I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you. Highlight you and get rid of myself. Uh, there you go. Thank you. Well, first of all, I hope everyone can hear me. Um, and if you can't, you better shout. Uh, I was saying to Kathy yesterday, I've got a, I've got a new um, computer, and uh, I'm using headphones. So uh, I can hear myself. <laughs> That's an awful lot. It could be an awful lot of use to you guys if you can't hear me. So fingers crossed you can hear me loud and clear. Uh, I'm going to give you a brief presentation on saffron, or specifically the history of saffron in England. Um, if you have any questions, I think it's probably best I'll answer them at the end. But if you want to pop them in the chat, if something springs to mind when I'm going through the presentation, just to say, I did a presentation uh, earlier this week, actually, to the uh, Leeds Food Symposium, which is a a collective of um, food historians in the north of England. And I did say to them that this presentation, my slides are designed for what I call a lay audience. So there may be some that I skip through a bit more quickly uh, because I suspect I would be teaching grandmother to suck eggs. But some things you have to explain sort of in sort of minute detail when you're doing it to people that aren't necessarily that familiar with certain historical um, trends and facts. So without further ado, I am going to try and share my screen. and begin my presentation. So what we can see here, I'm actually gonna explain this now while it's on the screen, because normally I cover this a little bit later in the presentation after the picture's gone, which is absolutely pointless. I I can see that now, but when I put it together, I picked this beautiful picture of this flower. Um, This is the crocus sativus. This is the saffron crocus. This is the only crocus that you will get saffron from. Now, it. It's not to say other crocuses don't exist, because obviously they do, and some do look quite similar. There's one in particular which flowers at the same time, which is the autumn, so in the fall. So this is um, right now in England, 
um, our, my current saffron growers that we have in this country are getting ready, uh, getting prepared for the saffron harvest. And if you can just see these leaves here, they're sort of quite, they're a bit blurred, obviously, because this is a, a close-up picture. They're sort of quite long and thin and um, quite pointed. This is what is coming through the ground now. I've got a few saffron bulbs planted in pots in my garden. I'll explain why they're in pots shortly. Um, and that, that's what I've got poking through. So it's great, a time of great excitement in terms of the saffron um, harvest, because it's a very short period, as I'll explain. So you have these beautiful petals, purple flowers that uh, come into bloom in the autumn, and they have these three long pendulous stamens in the middle. And these are referred to as the threads or um, strands, and this is what is dried to make saffron. And as I said, there are other varieties of saffron that flower at this time of year, uh, we have one in England called the autumn crocus, rather confusingly. It's also a purple or lilac colour, um, but unfortunately, it, um, it's not good for making saffron from. It doesn't have, this is crocus sativus is one of the few aromatic or uh, saffron uh, cultivars that has a scent. Um, so it's uh, a very specific. It's only this variety that you can get saffron from. The autumn crocus is also known in France as more ocean, uh, death to dogs, because if dogs consume it, um, they it can make them very poorly. I'm not sure it has that same effect on humans, but uh, I just I quite like that fact. So I like to share that. Anyway, just a little bit about me. Um, if this is maybe a lot lost on you guys, uh, because unless you know sort of the jokes about Essex girls in um in England, it's a it's a it's not, it's not a it's not a compliment, unfortunately. But I'm born in Essex. I was born in this town that you can see on screen. I wasn't actually born in this building, I hasten to add. This is the Guild's Hall in a small town in Essex, England, called Thaxted. And this is where my parents still live. Uh they moved back there a number of years ago. Um, I currently live in Sussex, which is just south of London. Essex is slightly north of London. And the reason I got interested in saffron in the first place is because my parents went to school in a town called Saffron Walden. And as I was growing up, uh, I, I began to wonder why would a town in Essex become associated with the world's most expensive spice? Because it's not something you would associate as being uh, being grown in England. We have a very temperate, damp climate for the most part. Uh, this summer was a, an exception, obviously. I don't know whether you've heard on the news, but we had a very dry, hot summer, which is incredibly unusual for this country. Um, although East Anglia, where of which Essex is a county that features in that eastern part of the country, is renowned for being slightly drier than, say, other parts of the country. But even so, it's it's generally we get a lot of rain um, and it's not generally that warm either compared to other uh, parts of the world. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of what sort of kickstarted my interest in saffron. And uh, it sort of my journey began from there. So I, I, when I say, I mean, I've, I've only I sort of wondered where it had come from and started looking into it. And it really is quite a fascinating story. Because as we'll see, we used to have a thriving saffron industry in this country. 
So one of the questions I get asked is, how did it get to England? Um, and this is uh, this is quite an interesting story. There's a number of theories. Some of them are a bit more romantic than others. Now, what we have here is a picture of a lady. And they also, if you expand the whole fresco, unfortunately, this is the only image I could get from the Internet for free. Uh, there are also monkeys. Uh, you can't see the monkeys picking what we believe to be saffron. But this is from... The um, a fresco found on Aquatiri on the island of Santorini, which used to be known as Thera, uh, which depicts saffron being picked by young women and monkeys. And it dates from around three and a half thousand to eleven hundred BCE. So uh, it's, we think this is where the saffron crocus originated and where it started to be cultivated um, way back um, thousands of years ago. But again, that doesn't explain exactly how it came here. So these are the three theories which I'm going to go through. These are the three main theories. I have I've drawn my own conclusions uh, as a result of my research, which I will share with you shortly. First of all, we have the Phoenicians. Now, um, Kathy mentioned um, the Cornish Society earlier, and this is a popular belief in Cornwall that the Phoenicians actually brought saffron to Cornwall. Now, they had a great influence across the Mediterranean. Phoenicia broadly corresponds to modern day Lebanon today. But as you can see, this red line on this map here, it is it sort of shows you exactly where their sort of influence stretched. And it's, it's as I say, right across the Mediterranean, even as far across to Gadir as it's written on here, or it's sometimes written as Gades, which corresponds to modern day Cadiz in Spain. Now, the story goes that there was a Phoenician called Himilco, and he was tasked with finding a new source of tin because the Phoenicians were particularly renowned for their beautiful bronze work, which this item you can see on the screen is housed in the British Museum in London. And they need tin to create um, bronze. Uh, and so they was they were sourced with they used to get quite a lot from Spain, but apparently the Spanish supplies were dwindling. So Himilco was tasked with um finding a new source of tin. And he sailed up the coast of Spain and bypassed France, which was renowned to have tin as well, and ended up in Cornwall. And it was with it was trading, uh, he traded supposedly the saffron for the Cornish tin. Now, unfortunately, that the Phoenicians had no form of coinage that we're aware of. So it was mostly their trade was done on a bartering system. And because saffron is, of course, uh, an organic uh, item, it's, we, do, we have no archaeological evidence to support this, or indeed we, they have been very limited. I mean, I think a few beads have been found in Cornwall to date that they think might be um, Phoenician, but there's no sort of archaeological evidence to support a presence of Phoenicians in that part of Britain um, at this time. The next theory is the Romans. Now, I don't know. Um, this is this is the theory that the Romans generally get blamed for everything, um, from building roads to the England's love of spices. Uh, some some which some theories of which are. Found, uh, well founded, others perhaps less so. Uh, one of the reasons they think the Romans brought it here is that we have a town in England, it's actually part of Greater London now called Croydon. 
And the theory is that the name Croydon comes from the Old English Crogeden or Croydon, um, which means valley where the wild crocus grows. And they believe, or people that th- uh, believe this theory, think that the Romans planted uh, the saffron crocus, Crocus sivus, in this valley. And hence, that's how Croydon eventually got its name. Well, now we do know that Theophrastus and Pliny praised the saffron, particularly that was grown in Silesia, which is in modern day Turkey. Um, and primarily they use saffron in things like perfumes, which they used to spray around theatres. Saffron, as we know, is very aromatic. So you can see why that would be popular. It was also used in medicines, particularly eye salves. Um, Pliny even thought that if you consume saffron before drinking wine, it would help stop you from um, getting drunk. Um, I don't think I've ever seen any evidence to support that theory personally. And it was also used in their spice wine known as Hippocrates. But it wasn't used a great deal in Roman cookery. Um, In Apicius, for example, there's only a few examples where saffron specifically is listed. Uh, So it's not, it didn't have, I don't think it was prized so much as a culinary ingredient by the Romans. Not when you can think about their usage of pepper or cumin, for example. Now, what we do know is that the Romans loved gardens, particularly around tombs. Uh, Virgil wrote a very fanciful poem called The Culex, which tells of a shepherd building a tomb for, um, I guess you'd call it a mosquito, um, that saved him from being attacked by a serpent because it bit him just before the serpent was going to bite him. Um, And he, around this tomb, the shepherd plants roses, hyacinths and crocuses, which uh, some translations of interpret as being the saffron crocus. They also grew fruit and vegetables uh, in their gardens uh, in large villas. So there's one not far from where I live in Sussex called Fishbourne, and they've done extensive excavations. And I've identified an area that they believe was probably a kitchen garden. But of course, again, there's no pollen samples that have survived to say exactly what was grown there. Um, so it's hard to say for sure if they were you planting saffron and harvesting it at this time. Um, and even if you find seeds like olive pips, for example, it doesn't mean that they were actually grown here. So Pliny has also said that he didn't think it was even profitable to plant saffron in Italy. So it seems more likely to me that they would have been importing saffron in its dried form um, from other areas of the empire, which, of course, was vast, rather than going to the trouble of trying to grow saffron crocus, apart from perhaps as a a, a quirk of something that was maybe of interest, but not on a commercial sort of level where they were harvesting it on a regular basis. And then finally, we come to probably the most famous theory, which is that a pilgrim smuggled one saffron corn. This is what you can see on the left hand side of the screen here. These are the this is how a saffron crocus grows. It comes from these corms or bulbs. It's entirely sterile. So the only way it multiplies is, is, is being in the ground. These bulbs will are said to child. So if you leave them in the ground for a long time, they multiply um, and then you lift them up and um, you will uh, have more saffron corms. So the theory goes, uh, Pilgrim travelled to popularly believe the Holy Land, but obviously you have to remember 
but there were other destinations like Santiago de Compostela in Spain or um, Rome itself. But he came across saffron um, and smuggled a bulb in his pilgrim staff. And that is how the entire saffron um, industry began in um, Britain. But as we will see, one saffron corm does not a saffron harvest make. Now, we do know that pilgrims, it's very likely they encountered saffron, whether in its dried form or even the the bulbs. Um, For example, if you were going to the Holy Land, a popular place to sort of set off from was Venice um, because it had good links to that part of the world. And it was also the centre of the spice trade at this point. Uh, William Way, who was a travel writer writing in the 15th century, uh, warns, advises pilgrims to stock up on dried fruit and spices like saffron in Venice before they go to the Holy Land, um, because he says it will give it shall give you uh, great ease, by the way, um, to prepare them for the feeble bread, wine and stinking water they were likely to encounter on the voyage. Um, the UNESCO World Heritage Site for San Jimenano, uh claims that pilgrims were astounded by the fields of purple that they could see en route um, when they were travelling the Via Francigena when they were en route to Rome. Um, although it's been noted by Gillian Riley, who's quite a, a renowned food historian here in England, um, that, that it's not really clear exactly when saffron came to be grown in Italy it was certainly grown at some point in Italy but as to when that was happening is is a little unclear Um, and then lastly Santiago de Compostela in Spain um, is could be another area where they encountered saffron we know that for example saffron was being grown in Spain at some point between the sort of 8th and 10th century it really sort of took off particularly in La Mancha, where it's still grown extensively today, but also Aragon and Valencia. So, and gradually from Spain, it travelled northwards. So by the 14th century, it was definitely being grown in France around the Gatineau, which I think is sort of, it's quite far north, actually. So it's possible that, you know, it, at the same time, it was it travelled into England, whether or not that was through with a pilgrim. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I'm sort of on the fence there. I should just say my my own view is that probably it came from Spain. Um, my personal view, given all, everything I've read, there's there were certainly if you were traveling to Santiago, um, it was easier to get. It was quite easy to get there from um, ports in the southwest of the country in Cornwall, like Foy, for example. Um, so it would stand to reason that uh, certainly in Cornwall I would think it's more likely to be sourced from Spain than perhaps Phoenicians but anyway however it got here at some point we decided as a a nation or our farmers decided as a nation that it was it was a good crop to grow now we have a a vicar called William Harrison he was uh, the 16th century rector of a village called Wimbish and Radwinter which are both very close to Saffron Walden Um, Saffron Walden is, I say, this small town in Essex where my family are from, um, and it was particularly renowned. It got associated with the growth of saffron uh, by the sort of early 16th century. It, it used to be known as Chepping Walden, which was mar- means mar- Chepping means market, but in the early 15th, 
16th century, Henry VIII granted the town a charter and they changed its name to Saffron Walden. Now, William Harrison had a great interest in history at the time. So he was writing um, after the Henry VIII's time, he was writing in Elizabeth I's reign. But he says that he places the date of it being widely grown. Now, I use that term widely because I think it probably was being grown in, say, monastery gardens uh, for medicinal purposes, certainly, um, prior to this. But on a wide scale, it was grown somewhere between Edward III, who started his reign in 1327, and Richard II, who's finished his reign uh, in 1400. So we're basically looking at saffron being grown here on a wider scale, on a wide scale, from sort of the um, 14th century. Now, Dorothy Cromarty, who was a historian who was from Saffron Walden, she did a study of the Chepping Walden court rolls from 1381 to 1420 to see if she could find a link between Saffron and the town. And she identified a lot of dye works in in Saffron Walden or Chepping Walden as it was then, uh, because uh, Essex was particularly also was renowned for its sheep uh, wool production. So they had um, dye works to colour their wool various colours um, and saffron was used as a dye. I'm afraid that's a bit out of my sphere of knowledge. So I, I don't really touch on that too much in the book, I'm afraid. But uh, she couldn't find a specific reference to saffron, but she was convinced that they, it was a logical assumption to make that it was being used to dye wool at this time. Um, because why else would you use it? I mean, it is, as we will see, used was used by the wealthy quite a lot in the medieval era in food, but it was also used as a dye. So she thinks it's an entirely logical assumption to make that saffron was being used in the sort of 13th, uh, 14th century into the 15th century. And certainly by the time she gets to started to look at the later records for around the 1440s, it was an important enough commodity around the town of Chepping Walden to enter into land transactions and affect rents. But the thing that we think probably prompted it most of all was the Black Death. Now, this occurred between sort of 13, around 1348, 1349, and had a huge impact on English society. They, a conservative estimate is around a third of the population in England uh, succumbed to the Black Death. And it could be as much as half the population. Uh, There are records, for example, that say that whole villages were wiped out by this disease. Now, of course, fewer people meant that there was less labour to cultivate the land. But conversely, there was also less demand for food. So this sort of provided an opportunity, if you like, for more um, alternative crops to be uh, cultivated that were perhaps more lucrative to the farmers and could be done on a saffron particularly could be done on a small scale. And this has been dubbed alternative agriculture. Now, the beauty of saffron um, is that it can be cultivated on small plots of land. Now, this is a description that was found in a pocketbook uh, in uh, actually in Cambridgeshire rather than Essex, which is a neighbouring county. And it dates from 1771. Uh, The chap whose pocketbooks or sort of accounts, if you like, it were like his household accounts was called Thomas Whale. And he, um, we don't know his relationship to William Clark. We don't know whether he was a friend 
or whether he was a tenant. But William Clark was cultivating saffron in Little Shelford, as say, which is in Cambridgeshire. And he sort of provided details on exactly how saffron was produced and farmed. And it hasn't changed. It has to be said, there's not an awful lot of difference between how it was done in the 18th century. And I'm sure it was pretty much done the same in the centuries before that and to how it is even done now in the 21st century. Now, we also know that there's a vast amount of, um, we know that saffron was an important crop because we it crops up in uh, wills. So a typical area of land where they would um, plant saffron uh, or have a saffron ground, if you like, would be measure, um, I haven't actually written it down in metres, but it's called a rood, which is a quarter of an acre. Now, in England, that's about, I think, something like a third of a, a soccer pitch. Um, I don't know how that would correspond to your football pitches in America, I'm afraid, but uh, it's not a vast amount of land. Uh, and that would you'd have these parcels of roots that were planted up with saffron. Um, and we know this because a, a lot of wills make reference to a rood of saffron being left quite often to the wife rather than the son. So one example we had was this um, chap called William Hutchison of Sawston, which is again in Cambridgeshire. And he left he left a rood of saffron to his wife, Johan, in 1531. But he was quite a generous chap by all accounts because he also left half, uh, half an acre, which is two roods, to his son, John, and one rood to his maid, Marjorie. Now, I don't quite know what Marjorie did to benefit getting the same bequest as her, his wife, but uh, she was clearly a valued servant because she did indeed inherit half a rood, or one entire rood rather, of uh, saffron, which would have been incredibly um, valuable at the time in the 16th century. So this is a picture. This is actually the end of the process. I'll just explain briefly how they sort of prepared the land. Uh, so initially you'd have this tract of land. Now, they could be sort of on the margins of other land that was being cultivated. Uh, quite often, they're sort of even today, they're sort of in quite odd locations because it was, I'd say, it was a, a form of um, like a sideline, I guess, for a lot of farmers. So they could make a bit of extra money. The land was prepared by hand uh, in the spring or summer. So it would have to be ploughed. You'd have to remove the large stones, uh, any weeds, and then it would be, a well, most farmers would then apply some kind of animal manure um, or dung uh, to help fertilise the land. Uh, quite importantly, it should be, um, not that it shouldn't be stiff, what they a lot of commentators refer to as stiff soil, uh, which is clay. Um, I live in Sussex now, um, and where I live, although I can see the beautiful South Downs from my house, uh, my garden is clay and you could frankly build bricks out of it so it wouldn't be suitable for saffron cultivation which is why my saffron bulbs are in pots um but generally free draining soil that that which was chalky or sandy was preferred and you would add the additional um dung to improve the fertility of the soil uh, there is uh, one chap called richard bradley who entirely disagreed with this method but uh, generally speaking that seems to be what most of them did so they would plant, uh, they would pair the soil in the spring around Lady Day, which is towards the end of March. 
uh, or early April. And then in the summer, they would plant the bulbs. Now, nowadays, they can use a bulb planter, which are quite popular in the Netherlands when they plant their tulips and things. But back then, it had to be done by hand. So as I understood, having read a number of uh, treatises on this, uh, the the gentleman would go around digging a trench and the ladies would follow behind and they would they would have to plant the bulbs or the corms in um, themselves. And they would be three inches deep, roughly three inches apart. So you can get thousands in this small tract of land, absolutely thousands of saffron corms, which is hence one saffron corm does not a saffron harvest make my comment earlier. Um, then, of course, the flowers would, they would just sit there and you you had to protect your grounds uh the biggest pest were for hares whenever you read these documents they always moan about the hares sometimes cattle could be a, a risk if they got in and trampled the tender leaves those little leaves i showed you at the beginning because they the plant needs that obviously to get the strength to produce the flowers um so they had to i, I mean it's not shown on this this artist's impression but they had to be fenced in these these roots so that uh, you could keep the hairs out and the uh, or the rabbits and cattle as well. And the flowers appear in the autumn and they are, as you've seen, beautiful. These purple, although um, these all appear to have come up at the same time. And it's um, at this point, it's it really is a race against time. The saffron has flowers even now. They have to be picked first thing in the morning before as the, um, in old documents would say they were fully blown. So before they're open, like that beautiful one I showed you at the beginning, ideally you pick them when they're still closed um, and it has to be done quickly and efficiently. And that's why, oh, but one of the reasons, again, women were used and small children and they would go out, come rain or shine, seven days a week, even on a Sunday, they would be out in the fields picking the saffron. Uh, and then, of course, they had to go back to, to the house and process them, because at this point, you've just got a, a basket full of flowers. And this is one of the reasons saffron is so expensive, because it's such labour intensive crop to farm. So here we've got some saffron that flowers that have been picked. This was actually in Kent, which is um, just a long uh, away for a little way from where I live in Sussex. And you pick would pick the flowers and you can see the, the stamens in there. And then you would have to take them back and remove those stamens by hand. Um, and it's it takes a long time. So I spoke to one saffron grower in England, a uh, modern one, this, this is, and he reckons it takes him around an hour to pick a thousand saffron flowers of, of, of the crocuses. Uh, which I think sounds quite quick personally. I don't think I'd pick, be able to pick that many in an hour, but it takes three times as long to take the stamens out. Uh, and at this point, they I mean, they are scented, but I was quite surprised. I always thought it would be quite an overpowering scent, like a hyacinth, but actually it's quite a delicate scent and it is, it is rather pleasant. Um, uh but uh, it's that characteristic smell that we associate with saffron doesn't develop until the spice has been dried and then left to mature. Now, nowadays, uh, we use dehydrators. So you can see on this picture here, this is some fresh saffron stamens that have been laid out to be dried in a dehydrator. 
and you can see clear individual strands, uh, which we refer to now as hay saffron. But in in sort of the 16th and 17th century, this is not how they were producing uh, processing saffron. What they would do is they would um, make cakes of saffron. So they would take these beautiful red stamens and they would gather them together and sandwich them between two sheets of paper. And then they would be put on it with, they would have to be dried in a kiln. Now, I'm just going to read you something. Um, this is Richard Bradley, who I mentioned earlier. And he um, he wrote extensively about the saffron industry in England uh, and uh, from sort of in the early 18th century. So right sort of the, the teens, if you like, right up to his death. It was shortly after this. I think he died around 1730, 1731. Um, but he describes a saffron kiln and this the picture you can see is, again, an artist, a modern artist's impression. So the kiln is much narrower at the bottom than the top. That is about four, uh, a foot square at the bottom and two foot at the top and about two foot high. This is made of oak framed together and covered with lathes on the outside as well as lined with them. Upon these lathes within, si within its side is spread a strong mortar two inches thick and the outside is covered with lime and hair. But the bottom on the inside must be covered Three, four or five inches thick with strong mortar to serve as a hearth to lay the fire on, leaving a hold on one side to put the charcoal in the charcoal fire and give it air. Now, charcoal was preferred because it was relatively smoke-free, um, but of course you had to have it at the right temperature. You couldn't, if it were too hot, you risked scorching the saffron, as Bradley observes here. Uh, and if it were, weren't hot enough, you wouldn't be able to dry your saffron effectively. So what they did was they, this, they had this sandwich, the saffron's so, uh, put between these two sheets of paper. And then you had sort of woolen um, blankets, if you like, but on either side of that. And it was put on top of the saffron kiln. Um, after an hour, the sandwich was flipped over and left for another hour and it was generally deemed that if you could get through this first two hours without the saffron catching fire uh, sometimes they would uh, sort of lightly sprinkle the saffron cake with uh, saffron uh, with beer rather to sort of help it sweat if you like to get out the moisture out of the saffron stamens um, if you could get through this first two hours without it catching on the outside then you, the generally the the high risk element of drying had been sort of averted. Um, but that wasn't the end of it. It had to, it took full 24 hours to dry completely. And it, during that time, the cake had to be flipped every half, a, half an hour, every 30 minutes. So again, quite a laborious process. Now, the papers themselves would, obviously the saffron would sweat, so it would leach out some colour and flavour, and they could be sold to make tincture. So it was one of the perks of the dryers. I know um, Sally Francis, who runs Norfolk Saffron, who kindly provided this um, picture for to me, she thinks that the saffron um, dryers were separate from the saffron growers. Uh, I'm not so convinced, because I've certainly read some, seen some records that imply that people that grew saffron had their own kilns and also I think this would have been quite heavy but it's not beyond the realms of possibility just to give you an idea of the yields 
five pounds of those wet or sort of fresh stamens that we saw equates to one pound of dried saffron uh, when it's actually dried, ready for use in recipes. And it's the yields would also affect the price of um, saffron. So in a good year, if there was lots and lots and lots of saffron um, produced and available on the market, it could fetch as little as 20 shillings a pound. But if it were a year where there weren't so much English saffron on the market, it could be as much as three or four pounds a pound. So, of course, although it was it could was a lucrative in, industry, it wasn't um, it was never certain. You were never quite sure what sort of year you're going to have in terms of yields. And it will be interesting to see how this hot, dry summer we've had in England has affected um, our own saffron crocus of uh, uh, saffron crop this year. So one of the reasons we grew saffron, well, it had many uses. Uh, as I mentioned, dyeing was definitely one of the uses for, for this um, crop. Uh, medicine, uh, which I will talk very briefly about, I do discuss briefly in the book, and food, which is obviously my primary area of interest, being a food historian. Um, I'm not going to go into too much detail here because I'm also conscious of time about the four humours. But it was it was basically the, the view was at this time, as we, you're probably all aware, was that what you ate could have an impact on your health and it could help treat illnesses as well. Um, so, and it depended on your complexion, or sort of whether you were a person that had more black bile or yellow bile or phlegm in terms of the four humours. Uh, Nicholas Culpepper, who was a herbalist writing in the 17th century, was had, you know, listed a variety of things that saffron was good for um, from a medical perspective. He describes it as a herb of the sun and is under the line and therefore you need not demand a reason why it strengthened the heart so exceedingly. Um, but he also warns that let not above 10 grains be given at any one time for the sun, which is a fountain of light, may dazzle the eyes and make them blind. Um, a cordial being taken in a in moderate quantity hurts the heart instead of helping it. But it does have a variety of benefits, um, including uh, treating consumption, uh, diseases of the lungs, plague, you frequently see saffron listed in treatments for the plague. Uh, I believe they put it in pomanders as well uh, when they, as a preventative for uh, when they were, people were walking around. Measles and yellow jaundice. And the interesting thing with measles was that even into the 20th century, it was believed that uh, a saffron tea could help uh, sort of cure uh, or help alleviate the symptoms of measles when you caught it. Now, of course, one of the reasons it was important to be careful about what sort of herbs and spices you used in your food is that it could they could generally and, and indeed medicines is that you could uh, treat symptoms or poor qualities in certain foodstuffs with these wonderful spices if who, that had opposing qualities. So saffron was believed to be hot in the um, first degree, sorry, dry in the first degree and hot in the second degree. And fish, 
by contrast, was obviously very cold and wet. So it's, you know, you've probably heard the story, for example, of Henry I, uh, one of our Plantagenet kings, who died from eating a surfeit of too many lampreys in 1135. So he would definitely have benefited from this dish, which is from the form of curry, which is a an almond milk sauce scented with saffron and spices with currants and uh, more almonds in, added. Uh, it was, you know, fish was eaten a lot in the medieval era, this sort of cold, wet ingredient. Um, and it because of the number of days that we had where we had to fast, where we weren't allowed to eat meat and periods where we weren't allowed to have dairy, either, so particularly Lent and um, Advent, which are sort of occurring in the darkest time of the year. It should be said that uh, all milk, uh, whether it's dairy or almond milk, is a great vehicle for saffron. It really does take on the colour. So, you can, again, you can see why it would be uh, popular. And also this, these occurred at the darkest times of the year. And I, you know, Cole Pepper speaks of saffron sort of gladdening um, the heart. Uh, so I, I think personally that uh, he's talking from a medical perspective, obviously, but I think, you know, yellow food, golden hued food, food certainly sort of is quite joyous and a, a joy is, you know, makes you feel happy inside. It makes me feel happy inside, but I might be a slightly biased there. But colour of food rarely could sort of mean have a greater meaning if you like rather than just simply being you know to make it look nice uh and which undoubtedly it did um it could carry spiritual and moral connotations now when we have things like um uh yellow you know when i say spiritual and moral connotations it could be as simple as white's good black's bad um good and evil that sort of a thing but it wasn't always as cut and dried as that so in the 13th century, the colour yellow actually could denote falsehood, which is rather confusing when you've got something that's saffron coloured. But eating golden food was in, considered to be incredibly beneficial. Now, we, we owe a debt of um, um, sort of coloured food in general, owes a debt to the Arabic nations. Uh, we were being exposed to it, as I said, when we were on pilgrimages, but also uh, the Crusades. Um, the Arabic influence in southern Spain. So when people were coming, their soldiers were coming back from the Crusades, they'd probably experienced these wonderful golden-hued dishes um, and highly spiced dishes and wanted to sort of, to a degree, experience that back at home. Our Baghdadi's book of dishes, for example, has many um, saf has many recipes that include saffron. So I, I'm pretty sure that would have inspired the Normans when they um, when they sort of came across this cuisine. Now, gold was thought by Arabic uh, physicians to lengthen human life. So if you, you can see how the leap between eating gold um, itself um, and having a golden huge dish coloured with saffron, you would be sort of vicariously consuming the life enhancing properties of gold. Um, there is a saying that gold in physic is cordial. Um, that's from Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. It's in the prologue. Uh, and although physicians knew or believed that gold was really good for you to eat it, consume it, uh, they were also uh, 
canny enough to realise that if you eat gold leaf, it comes out the same way it goes in. It doesn't get digested. So there was a real push in sort of the 17th century, particularly 16th and 17th centuries, to find a form of potable gold, something you could drink. Um, There was a goldsmith's son, a story I particularly like, uh, called Francis Anthony, and he claims to have developed a, a drinkable gold and made an absolute fortune off the back of it because people thought they were literally drinking liquid gold. And you do, I, I have come across recipes in um, manuscripts that have been written by the lady of the house. There's a, a particular lady called Grace Mildmay who uh, kept records of her. She was a, very interested in medicine at a time when she wouldn't have been able to practice as a professional doctor. Um and uh, she kept a list of her recipes, uh, med- medicinal recipes, one of which is drinkable gold. And that one didn't contain saffron. Um, but of course, if you wanted to persuade people they were drinking something that had the benefits of gold, the easiest way to do it and the cheaper way, let's be honest, was to colour your cordial uh, which or your aquavitae, which is this is an example of with saffron. This one is actually um, a recipe called uskabal or uskabar, um, which has been coloured with saffron. It's got lots of spices and herbs in it and uh, like licorice. Uh, I'm not going to lie. It's quite I think it's quite an acquired taste. Uh, another remedy that you often see saffron appearing in is something called surfit water. Now, we ate uh, our meals in courses during this time, right up really till the 19th century. And you would have in a course, as you probably know, you would have a number of dishes for each course, usually three courses, but a number of dishes. And so it's easy to see how people could possibly overindulge at a meal. And so therefore you were recommended to have a digestive, digestive, I guess you would call it, of surfeit water, which contained, as you can see, this is a recipe from Hannah Glass, quite a renowned um, 18th century writer in Britain. And it contains, as you can see, it's got the saffron here uh, and a myriad of other ingredients, which personally, I think if I if I consume that, that would probably give me indigestion. But uh, apparently it was it was good for dealing with uh, overindulgence. And it should be said, saffron cordials generally were quite, or well, cordials in themselves, not always coloured with saffron, but um, were very popular during this period, sort of 16th, right, 16th through to the 18th century. And they had a base of aquavitae, um, which is a, a, a distillation, I suppose we, nowadays you'd call them, uh, we'd probably call, refer to them as gin, um, but they were out, extremely alcoholic. So, there was a, a wonderful story of uh, one of Elizabeth's, the first statesman, Thomas Smith, um, or two of her statesmen, I should say, Thomas Smith and Sir William Cecil, who you may have heard of, sort of exchanging recipes for these remedies uh, for various ailments. I, I love the idea of these two grumpy old men sitting together, chewing the fats and uh, uh, and discussing their various ailments and swapping recipes for various uh, surfeit waters and other cordials. But of course, it was used, you know, gold was really was used still in at the at this time. It wasn't completely sort of uh, eradicated or its use wasn't eradicated um, by saffron. It was used particularly in, for special feasts. So uh, 
for example, Richard III, when he was crowned in 1483, they ordered um, the wardrobe, which was the department responsible for the herbs and sp- the spices, I should say, um, ordered a hundred uh, hundred sheets of gold leaf just for that sh- feast alone. But the neighbouring department, the sorcery, which is named of pies, was responsible for the making the sauces for the said feast, ordered three pounds of saffron. Now, that was just for one one meal. That's that's an awful lot of saffron. But of course, it wasn't an everyday ingredient. We have to remember that it was still, for the most part, used sparingly, and it was only available to really wealthy households. So this is the uh, a list of purchases for of spices and almonds and rice from Alice de Brienne. She was a Suffolk noblewoman, right? And this is from the fifteenth early fifteenth century. And you can see she was her household. They would have been buying these probably at special fairs um, once or twice a year tops. She, you know, this is her uh, annual account for, you know, she's buying pepper, ginger, cinnamon and cloves. And hopefully you can see the prices. But saffron was selling it. She was paying 13 shillings for a pound of saffron. Um, And when you compare that to, I mean, even the almonds, she was only paying for 20 pounds of almonds, just over four shillings. So it's it was incredibly expensive. Hence, for the most part, used very sparingly. So how was it used? What what recipes was it used in? Well, obviously, we've discussed all the benefits of having this wonderful yellow coloured food in the sort of dark periods of year like uh, Lent and Advent when you were fasting. But it was also used to enhance colour green, for example. So you can see here a pea tart. This uh, was used to sort of really make enhance the green colour. And it, it really does work. I've got these, these recipes in my book um, sort of really make the green pop is the only way I can really describe it. Uh, and the other picture is, of sorry, it's a little bit blurred, but it's blown up like this, but it's of a green sauce, a verde sauce, which is, um, I always describe to people as like salsa verde, but entirely vegetarian. There's no anchovies in it, but it's beautiful sauce. It's such a versatile sauce. Uh, I love it. And it's got, that also has saffron in it. And this was known, uh, this sort of colour enhancement, if you know, it was known as could create something called gaudy green in English or ver gay, which I think sounds much nicer. And it was also occasionally saffron sprinkled over dishes. We know this from the Ménagère de Paris, uh, which is a French uh, French medieval cookery manual, um, that it was sprinkled over some dishes. Uh, we think this is an incredibly extravagant use of it. Uh, it's described as in French as being frangé, which doesn't have a literal English translation. But if you think of it as a bit like we sprinkle sugar on things today. The other thing that is probably more common in terms of our mind of saf- using saffron was to gild things, particularly birds, for example. So this is my impression of a gilded chicken. Um, you know, a little saffron goes a long way especially when it's diluted in a liquid. And it's far more economical to use this than gold leaf. So quite often they might have, if when they put the feathers back on, they might gild a bird's beak, for example. But if they wanted to give the effect of a naked bird, if you like, um, being gilded, they were far more likely to use saffron. And you often see recipes finish with, finishing with the instruction in the medieval era, endure with yolks of erun and saffron. Now, the cockatrice, which was a 
um, mythical uh, creation presented at feast, which featured a, the back end of a cockerel and the front end of a pig sort of spliced together. That was also basted in a batter of flour, egg yolks, ground ginger and saffron. So it could be served as a royal meat, which is, that's to say, something suitable for the noble table. The best medieval cooks were artists, really, in their own right. You know, they could transform something relatively mundane, such as a roast chicken that we have here, into something astounding. And this uh, lovely um, Madeleine Pelner-Cosman refers to this as orifiction rather than orifaction. Um, which I love that phrase. Um, a good example, I think, is the golden apples, which were served at the feast of Henry IV in 1399, coronation feast. Um, and this is my my own impression of a golden apple. I am going to put my hands up here and say I did I did embellish it further with the, one of those gold sprays that you can buy. So I did cheat a little bit, but uh, for the sake of the camera. But uh, it is they were I dipped them if you like they were meatballs in the batter and baked them after they'd been boiled and you do get this beautiful sort of color you can see at the bottom so I'm pointing here they the batter was sort of this sort of color and looks looks stunning um but of course the one thing I haven't touched on is flavor you know it's all well and good making food look pretty um, but, you know, flavour must have been important as well, because saffron does appear in a number of recipes that have got ingredients in it. That, so you wouldn't know the saffron's in there. They sort of mute the yellow or obliterate it entirely. Um, one thing, I, you know, particularly beef stews, there's another recipe called rishus, which are uh, a pastry which is encloses a fruit, dried fruit filling with dried figs, raisins, and a number of spices, one of which is saffron. So you can't even see the saffron inside the pastry. So it must have been included for a flavor, uh, flavor reasons. And um, you know, the uh, one of the other uh, recipes it occurs in is the one of the earliest recipes we have for gingerbread, for example, and that includes cinnamon, pepper, and saffron, but curiously no ginger, and it. It's interesting because it does add a completely different dimension to something that's quite familiar with or would otherwise be quite familiar with. Now, one of the questions I get asked a lot is how much saffron is too much saffron and what, what is a pinch? Now, I always say, well, my pinch is not the same as your pinch. So I think, you know, those beautiful strands we sh I showed you at the beginning, if you count them out, I would say my pinch is about 18 to 20 strands. Now, that sounds like a lot. Uh, and I do say to people, if you're a bit worried about it uh, tasting bitter or soapy, use less. Uh, I think as with all spices, you have to use a bit of your own sort of um, judgment on how much to use. So saffron was used in the medieval era through the 16th and uh, into the 17th centuries fairly extensively. But by the 18th century, it was beginning to do decline quite rapidly in this country. It was still being produced in Cambridgeshire, for example, but by the 19th century, homegrown saffron had all but disappeared. We know, for example, that the last saffron grower, documented saffron grower that we know about, died in 1827 at the age of 89. So uh, after that, it's rare to see English saffron being sort of marketed on a wide scale. Uh, 
is even as early as 1678, there were indications that it was under fierce competition from saffron being imported from other places like Spain. So Gideon Harvey reported that English saffron was selling at 50 shillings a pound in 1678. But in um, Spain, Spanish saffron was only selling at 24 shillings a pound. So you could see how people would perhaps be more inclined to buy the Spanish saffron than the English saffron. Where it did continue, however, was in, in savoury goods. I mean, it does still appear in what I would we would consider in Britain as foreign cuisines, particularly in the 19th century when we established uh, sort of uh, sort of our in colonial uh, interests in India. It does appear in curries, for example, quite frequently. But in a domestic in a domestic sphere, it's pretty much disappears entirely by the 19th century from what I would class as classic English dishes. Now, where it is does continue is in baked goods. So here we have uh, a Simnel cake, um, one of the um, examples of uh, where saffron was used historically. Now, this is my, again, a, a sort of, this is a hybrid, I would say, um, of a, a modern day mixed with a, an old style Simnel cake or fruit cake. Now, cakes in the past used to be leavened with yeast. And this, the, the base of this cake is a, uh, a yeasted, uh, is based on a recipe from Jervis Markham uh, from 1615. It's a spice cake recipe. It does contain saffron and fruit. And it's it's like a, I guess, like a brioche, you would say, sort of a brioche style cake. Um, it was, saffron was used also in breads for feasts, as I've discussed. Um, and Simnels are no exception because they were, used they were made classically for the mothering sunday uh but although they were also made a lot a lot of people realize at christmas and for easter themselves uh, in this country we still tend to serve simnel cakes at easter rather than around mothering sunday but originally in the original simnel the cake itself inside probably didn't include saffron where the saffron was contained is they used to coat them in a pastry uh, that was coloured with saffron. So they'd be beautiful golden colour. And then the cake was inside. It was boiled and then baked. So what resulted was that you had an extremely tough outer layer encasing this cake. And I assume that was to keep the cake its inside itself as fresh as for as long as possible. Now, there were signals were still being made well into in this fashion, well into the 19th century. And there was one account I read of a lady confusing her rather large signal for a footstool. It was that hard. So I guess she must have needed a pretty sturdy knife to cut into it. But of course, nowadays, I don't know whether you have this in the States, but nowadays in England, a signal cake they has lost the entirely lost the outer uh, coating of pastry. And it has been replaced with normally a layer of marzipan through the middle of the cake and then topped with more marzipan and 11 um, balls of marzipan, which are to, said to represent Christ's disciples, obviously minus Judas. Now, saffron buns um, were particularly popular, uh, or saffron cakes, as they usually refer to in old cookbooks. 
This recipe you can see here is from the 18th century in Sarah Harrison's Housekeeper's Pocketbook. Uh, often nowadays in Cornwall, particularly in Devon, they you would expect to find a saffron bun containing dried fruit. And there are recipes from this period of the 18th century that say you can include uh, dried fruit, but it's it was far more common actually for seeds to be included. So, for example, Hannah Glass, who we met earlier, she has a saffron cake recipe in her book, uh, the art plain art of Cook- the, the art of cookery made plain and simple, and that contains caraway seeds. Um, which she does uh, when she gets to the end of the recipe, she does say she doesn't actually like caraway seeds. <laughs> But you can put them in if you if you if you feel like it. Uh, this recipe has coriander seeds, but conversely, and it's actually I think a lovely. They really sort of marry up well the saffron and the coriander. I think this is possibly my my favourite type of saffron cake uh, with the coriander seeds. In Cornwall, which for some reason is the only, although we at one point these would have been. Freely available all around the country. I don't know where Sarah Harrison herself was from, but certainly it was possible to get saffron cakes or buns all over the um, country uh, at this point. But for some reason, they've sort of resolutely maintained that tradition in Cornwall and not, we've lost it in other counties in this country. Um, in Cornwall itself, they apparently used to mark the saffron buns when it was Easter with a cross. Uh, like hot cross buns uh, that we would get, say, in Sussex. And the idea was that that would ward off evil spirits. But the Cornish also believed that if you kept one of these Good Friday buns um, all year round, at which point it would be incredibly stale, obviously, it wouldn't go mouldy, though, and you could grate it into the broth of an invalid and it would help make them better. And they also in Cornwall, they used to include saffron in their Christmas cakes, although crucially you weren't allowed to cut the cake until Christmas Day itself because it was bad luck. And one of the most poignant things I discovered when I was doing my research, I went down to Cornwall to the Crescent Kernel um, archives um, and a, I found a lot of letters from that had been sent back from the, the home front uh, or the Western Front rather, by soldiers from Cornwall that had received food parcels from Newquay Borough Council. And in, in those parcels, it was they were sent around Christmas time. As you can see, this, this letter was dated uh, the 26th and the 12th, 1917. They wrote back that uh, they included some good old-fashioned saffron cake. And the soldiers that wrote, wrote back was just so, so delighted to receive this wonderful taste of home. And it was the idea was that they were going to receive something that uh, like their mother would make. Uh, what's particularly funny is when you read some of the letters, they they explain that they were sharing them with their comrades in the trenches and that some of the, the other fellow soldiers were quite dismissive or quite wary about eating these brightly yellow, bright yellow buns that have been sent across the, the ocean. But actually, when they tried them, they thought they were absolutely delicious. So I thought that was um, just a, just such a lovely, lovely sort of poignant um, thing to discover. Uh, it's probably not relevant to you guys unless you happen to be coming over to the UK. But with the saffron, um, they're trying to revive sort of not perhaps a saffron market per se, because they 
There'll only be a small amount of saffron being sold here in Saffron Walden on uh, Saffron Day. But they are having a Saffron Day in Saffron Walden, uh, the historic home of saffron production in the UK, uh, on the 16th of October, which I'm part of. And that's it. So as I've said, this is uh, a lot of the things I've showed you today in terms of the recipes are in my book, Fool's Gold, A History of British Saffron, which is, I believe, if it's not out yet, it's out shortly in the US. And you can, if you've got any questions that spring to mind after today's session, uh, you'll feel free to email me or you can visit my website and there's other social media things there if you would like to uh, have a look. I'm going to stop sharing now. Okay. There you go. Uh, by the way, so Cynthia Clampett, uh, was in Mineral Point, Wisconsin. This is in the Upper Peninsula area. Oh, yes. And found that due to the large population of Cornish miners, in addition to pasties, they have saffron buns oh, and lovely. cookbooks for tourists on how to make them. Oh, good. That's good to hear. Um, there was uh, it wasn't doesn't relate to Mineral Point directly, but there was a a, a writer called Vida Heard, and she was South African, and she a lot of people left Cornwall in the nineteenth century, and they emigrated to the U.S., Canada, and South Africa, and apparently they um their families used to send them parcels of saffron to uh in South Africa, and they were very that they got basically confiscated by the customs because they thought it was something incredibly dodgy that they were being sent over. Um, so it's good to hear that it was saffron buns were being made in in uh, Mineral Point. It's uh, it's great, great to know this spread this far. So, Right, and they did the, the pasties, but when the Cornish miners left the area, they were replaced by Finnish miners who oh, okay. also had a tradition of making pasties. But in, uh, but in in their home country in Finland, they made it with rye dough. Yeah, but they continued yeah. to make it with wheat flour dough, like the local uh, corns had done, Cornish people had done. Yeah, so, so there you go. They're um they're quite interesting. They're they're pasties. Oh, well, I say pasties. I can't remember what they're called exactly. My friend, I have a very good Finnish friend, and and whenever I visit her, she she uh make sure I try lots of traditional Finnish foods. Um, so it's... Uh, it's well, at least in the, in the United States, we refer to it. I mean, in this region, where we're aware of it, it's pasties. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, it's it's uh, it's good that there's that ex that cultural exchange or culinary exchange. Um, so it's, it tickled me that they, they had this, uh, the, this problem getting the saffron into South Africa initially. I believe they, they did eventually get get through, but uh, um, send cheese to the United States; it will be confiscated uh, yeah. by by customs. Um, uh, I have I've, a go, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, go go, go ahead. Uh, I I was going. Um, I don't know what I was going to say. Actually, I was going to say I think it's being grown in the state saffron. I was trying to find before I started the call. Uh, I, I know someone started following me on Instagram last year, and I think they might be in Vermont. Uh, someone on the call might know, um, but I believe you you have saffron being grown here, uh, grown there. I mean, um, we do have we have a number of producers now in Britain, sort of being revived um, again on a small scale. 
um, because it's it is still such a labour intensive industry. It's it's really I can't sort of stress enough. There really are no shortcuts uh, apart from maybe the planting these days. It's all done by hand, and it's it's they they literally they struggle every year with the harvest because people go yeah I, I, we'll come and help pick your saffron and pick this. they've got so many stories of people turning up for one day's work and then never coming back again so it's so so hard well they got one day's work out of them uh, yeah i have a question it has it has to do with you referred to the uh uh at least that's what we call them here but you have another yeah. pronunciation i'd love to hear it apicius okay. um so do you know sally granger no, but tell us all about. So Sally Granger, bear with, I've got one of her books here. So I've got a bookshelf next to me, uh, if I can find it. Right. So hopefully you can see that. It's back to front yes. for me. But uh, so um, Sally Granger has written, and with her husband, Chris, uh, Christopher Grocock, have written uh, extensively about, they've studied Apicius, uh, this is actually, if you can get hold of this in the US, it's published by Prospect Books, who publish my books. But it's great if you want to get into Roman cookery, because um, they've converted them for modern modern um, kitchens. Uh, she's told me it's Apicius, but she does say, a lot of people still say Apicius, but she she pronounces it Apicius. I used to say Apicius, but... It's a big use. Okay, good. Then we're on we're on the same because because uh well Cynthia Clampett, she's here. Uh she informed us that was the, the correct way to pronounce it. Apicius. Or a Ap- no, you know, Apicius. what you did. Yeah, in Apicius. fact, Cynthia, Cynthia, why don't you let me let me get her here because this was a discussion point a while back. And maybe she'll tell us we're doing it wrong. All right, Cynthia, if you want to join us, you're welcome to. Here we go. Okay. Uh, well, it was just basically having studied some Latin. Uh, I know that Latin, if you're speaking Latin, C is pronounced K. Okay. But in America, that's, I mean, it's like Cicero. If you've heard of Cicero, the the, the yep. great, great, great uh, Roman philosopher, um, it would have been Cicero. Cicero. Oh, how weird. I have so thought it's that. one of those things where it's it's like, well, I mean, it's everything. It's like when I was in, in Turkey, I went to Cappadocia, which, of course, we call Cappadocia here. So it's one of yeah. those things where, you know, it depends on what you're trying to do. If you're trying to communicate with people, then you pronounce it the way they're going to understand it. Of course. Yeah. But, I mean, uh, but yes, I've gone back and forth between Apicius and Apicius just because, OK, this is America and we don't speak Latin. Yeah. I, uh, thought, my, it was, I thought it was Greek, Cynthia. No, Apicius is is uh, okay. Latin. All right, all right, fine. Yeah, because he was Roman. Romans, that was yeah. yeah. I mean, it may have it may have been adopted from the Greek because I know a lot of Roman stuff was, but I just know it was from studying Latin that I got the K sound. Yeah, my dad used to always correct me that it was Cicero, not Cicero. I didn't know. I didn't even think of that. But yeah, you're right. I mean, my son actually told me uh, he did, used to do Latin and he said it was a Apicius as well. But I asked, I met Sally for the first time in person this year and I did ask her. <laughs> she, yeah. says, she goes, I, I say Apicius. She goes, but I'm aware a lot of people say Apicius. 
she goes people will still know who you're talking about so that's your yeah. thing so or they will have no idea what you're talking about and they'll just believe you because you told them well yeah well yeah there's that as well yeah <laughs> um has anyone got any other questions they'd like to ask yes i do again nothing to do with your talk precisely but you mentioned lampreys oh yes and and in the great lakes we have uh, an invasive lamprey population. Okay. So where in the UK, if you wanted lampreys, would you obtain them? Oh, gosh, now you're asking. I well, uh, Every river in England. I don't think they well, are. I, I think they're quite rare you. now. I think we... Well, I know, but I'm just saying in the old days. Oh, in the old days, yeah. They were, they were, um, they were quite common, but uh, I don't think they were farmed. I mean, we did have um, fish farms... Of, of a sort, uh, particularly in monasteries and stuff, because obviously they they didn't they they fast uh, amounts of the day a uh, year they didn't eat meat. Um, but lampreys, I think, were were indigenous. I don't think they are anymore. I'm not an expert on fish. I think if you want to get hold of lampreys uh, from other food historians, I know that have cooked lamprey. I think they've had to get them in, um, go to a specialist supplier, and I think they're imported from. Eastern Europe now. Um, yeah, but there are, there's a place in Greenwich where you can get jelly deal. Yeah. That's very nice. But the reason I ask is because uh, there's a, a a restaurant that specializes in English meat pies here in the United States, in, in Chicago area. And they were given a small quantity of lampreys harvested from the Great Lakes to make a kind of a coronation type pie or whatever. The, yes. The and I was allowed just to taste a little bit of the syrup of the gravy or whatever you want to say it, because everything was intended for some other event. But they were claiming that the that when the UK needs lampreys, like for the royal household, they're getting them from the Great Lakes. I It was just one of those things. When you mentioned lampreys, it was like, all right, you're the person to ask. They, cool. they, I'm pretty sure they're not getting them from an English source, uh, so they could get many. They, so traditionally, I think it's Gloucestershire that's where they were particularly predominant, and they used it. It was a tradition at one point to um, give the king or queen that was being crowned a uh, a lamprey pie when they were. Uh, so uh, they did. I don't know whether she got one for this jubilee. Uh, that we had um, Elizabeth II went, uh, earlier this year, her 70th year. But they used to, somewhere in this country, they used to produce these lamprey pies. I, I'm sure someone will try and do one for King Charles when he gets crowned next year. But um, I've never tried them. Uh, I can't say I, I mean, I'll give anything a go once. I guess there's probably a bit like an eel. They look a bit like an eel. I assume they taste a bit like an eel. Or you probably have a better idea, Kathy, if you've tried one, uh, tried a bit of pie yourself. But just um, the barest amount of the, the juice that leaked out. That's they're not very pretty I fish. I know that much. I have seen pictures of them. They are pretty, they're pretty nasty looking fish. <laughs> and they're nasty to come upon. I mean, they're sucking off a fish. And it can mm. be a bunch of them. You know, yeah, yeah. Basically, but, killing their host. But yeah, poor old Henry the First. He ate too many of them, and apparently, his physicians used to warn him about his overindulgence. Um, I doubt very much it was a. Well, yeah, I guess he could have got food poisoning, but I, I doubt it was actually the fish itself that killed him. But that's that's the the legend. Um, you know yeah. that you should, don't eat too many lampreys, otherwise you'll die. He didn't obviously have enough saffron with them, I guess. 
but uh, yeah. Well, unless nobody, I don't think anybody's coming up with a question because I think you told us so much that we're still adjusting. That. Sorry, I did say I no, did. No. I know I said to you last excellent. night. I was trying not to go. And I, 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 it's um, it's it's tough with uh, uh, you're not quite sure the crowd you're talking to. So when I when I, I do usually do quite a big section on the whole explaining the humours because uh, to lay people because they don't they don't really understand understand or the ch- the chances are they're not going to understand. But uh, yeah. And well, there was an era in. when everybody knew what the humours were, and now, well, yeah, now it's a faded topic. It is. Well, it went out when they stopped bleeding people. Sorry? Uh huh. I said the, the interest in humor has went out when we stopped bleeding people. Oh, really? That's why yeah. you bled people, is to balance the humors. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, they, there's, that was one way of doing it. But uh, there's, I say, you could write a whole book on um, related to humoral theory and the use of uh things like saffron and other herbs and spices it's, it's a fascinating area but uh yeah i had to be quite brief in the book i only had a small i had a, a low i had a small word count relatively speaking so yes. I, I cut a touch i touch on the medicinal uses of saffron but only very briefly i mean it was did it cropped up in a lot of things even things like laudanum but I think a lot of the times it was probably added to make things look more colourful and perhaps a bit more appealing, um, mm-hmm. as well as the supposed benefits. Yeah. But, well, I want to. I'm going to send you a copy of the chat because there were people who just thrilled with your talk today. Thank you. And uh, I'm going to let you return to your life, which apparently is still you still got some daylight left. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's just coming up for. 5.30 over here. So, um, yeah, I've, uh, I have I can hear noises in the house. Either my cats have broken into the kitchen and are eating the gingerbread I made earlier, or my husband and son have returned from, he had a, a soccer match earlier. So, um, yeah. So Well, I'll return you to your life, but thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you for inviting me. It's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure as well. Thank you again. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So good evening, everybody. Um, We have actually two hosts tonight because this is a joint program of the Highland Park Historical Society and Culinary Historians of Chicago, or if we want in alphabetical order, Culinary Historians and the Highland Park Historical Society. But we're joined at the hip because I'm in the in-between stage. I do the programs for the Highland Park Historical Society for those of you who may not be aware of it. Anyway, I'm Catherine Lambrecht. So now I'm going to turn this over to Scott Warner, who's the president of Culinary Historians, who does the programs for Culinary Historians. I'm just Kathy. I do the other program. Scott, are you there? Yeah. And uh, welcome, everybody, to our meeting of the Culinary Historians of Chicago. And Kathy, I always say we're like the Smothers Brothers, Tom and Dickie, (laughs) and you can't tell them apart. So uh, our group's we each have our own group, and we're joined at the hip. Uh, Kathy does Chicago Foodways Roundtable, and what's what's the name of the, the Greater Midwest Foodways and the Highland Park Historical Society? And if you really want the full plate, Illinois Mycological Association yeah, Mushroom you're a, Club. You're a it's fun ridiculous, guy. I know. You're a fun guy. I tell you, I am. I'm a fun gal. Yes, and uh, 
And of course, I'm culinary historians in Chicago, and Kathy helps put the programs together. She's the glue sending out the notices and the emails and collects the dues and handles the website. So all I do is the programs. So anyway, now on to tonight's program. We're going to talk about the, it's, there's the, the, first, the first Christmas. Well, we're going to talk about the first Thanksgiving. Uh, John Oda will discuss the first Thanksgiving and any myths, facts, everything. We've got a whole bountiful plateful. John is, is, is this is our, his second time talking for us. He's discussed historic kitchens. Uh, you know, I lost track of time in 2020, right, Kathy? Right, he, John was our first speak, Zoom speaker. One of our first Zoom that, speakers, absolutely. After the pandemic hit. And John is in Canada. I just told John before the program started that I consider Canada a wonderful suburb of the United States. But I know there's some Canadians listening. So, But I mean that as a term of endearment because I never consider Canada a foreign country, although they do speak kind of funny. But uh, anyway, uh, but that's about all the truth I have on that. Anyway, John has been involved with architecture and design since 1978. He's an architect. He has worked in architecture offices in Toronto, New York, and Vancouver, and has degrees from the School of Architecture, Columbia University, and the University of British Columbia. He has also written articles on architecture and design for major newspapers and magazines across Canada. And he's an ardent foodie, as you you would know if you heard him speak uh, two years ago for our group. Um, he's uh, when he wrote, when he spoke about his book, The Kitchen. He's an active member of the Culinary Historians of Canada. And John, could you take it away and speak clearly so we can understand you and understand okay. the reaction? Right. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, Scott. Thank so you, Catherine. Welcome. So this is the Pilgrim Kitchen and the Harvest Celebration, 1621, 400 years ago. So my name is John Olta. And I love Thanksgiving. I'm going to take us on a whirlwind 40-minute talk on the Pilgrim Kitchen and the Harvest Celebration 1621, also known as Thanksgiving. We'll barely touch the surface, but I hope this gives a taste of the history of this favorite holiday celebration. So thank you to Scott Warner and Catherine Lambrecht uh, and everybody in Chicago for tuning in here. And thank you to my friends from Canada who are also on this presentation. Thank you very much. I also want to thank Kathleen Wall, Pilgrim Foodways expert. Kathleen Wall is the culinary historian on the cooking techniques of the Mayflower settlers. Much of the information in this talk is thanks to Kathleen. And just it's frozen, so we'll just click on that. There we go. This presentation on the Pilgrim Kitchen is the first chapter in my book titled The Kitchen, published by Penguin Random House. The book is about my journey through history to find the perfect kitchen. So I visited the kitchens of Thomas Jefferson, Georgia O'Keeffe, Julia Child, Elvis Presley, and many others, and I cooked in those kitchens too. You can buy it at your favorite bookstore or online. The first kitchen that I visited for the book was the Pilgrim Kitchen 1627 Plymouth, Ma Plymouth, Massachusetts. Even though there were earlier settlements in the New World, Plymouth, for me, is the spiritual beginning of the United States. If we could step into the time tunnel 
and set the dial for 1620, this is where we would land. I don't know if you remember this show, but these two guys would walk into the time tunnel and there'd be smoke and lightning and they'd go back in time. And we would go with them and we'd land on the Mayflower. In 1620, the Pilgrim sailed into Cape Cod Bay at Plymouth. At the same time, ships from England, France, Spain, and Holland were sailing the high seas, jockeying to establish settlements in the New World. Above all, in 1620, the United States of America was not even a twinkle in anyone's eye. So you can see Plymouth here over on the top left, um, just where uh, Cape Cod gets attached to the mainland. When the pilgrims landed, they found the Wampanoag people who had lived there for over 12,000 years before them in 70 villages around Cape Cod. The Wampanoag possessed a complex society with their own governance, traditions, and religion. There could be no longer shot for survival than that faced by the pilgrims in 1620. Amid turmoil, setbacks, and confusion, the pilgrims set out from England to make their famous voyage across the Atlantic Ocean aboard the Mayflower and founded Plymouth Colony. I think it's one of the most fascinating stories in humankind. We're at Plymouth Patuxet Museum in Plymouth, Massachusetts, a historical site that was reconstructed near the site of the original Plymouth uh, village. Although the town's name is now Plymouth, spelled with a Y, there were no firm rules for English spelling in the early 1600s. So Plymouth, spelled with an I, was used by the colony's second governor, William Bradford, and is the version adopted by the museum. I've arranged to meet Kathleen Wall at the museum entrance. I've signed up for her hardcore hearth cooking class. I came to learn about Pilgrim Kitchen and to make Pilgrim dishes in a 1627 kitchen. So there's Kathleen and pilgrims wore colorful clothes. The black suits and the tall hats and those big belt buckles are a myth fabricated by artists a hundred years later who copied clothes of Dutch citizens in black suits. So Kathleen suggests that I walk up to the pilgrim village, acclimatize myself to the 1620s and then join her inside one of the pilgrim houses. So I set out towards the Plymouth Plantation Village along a dirt path that meanders through an oak forest. I walked through a Wampanoag village, which shows the traditional ways of the Wampanoag people who were here and greeted the colonists when they came in 1620. And I love how the native story is told alongside the pilgrim story at this historic site. The Wampanoag lived in communal longhouses and cooked in the center of the floor plan. The native people, told the colonists where to fish, hunt, and how to grow maize. And this is a shot of the smoke hole in the top of that longhouse. So the, the smoke could get out. The pilgrims were actually city people. They did not know how to hunt or fish or farm. They all would have starved without the natives. The Wampanoag, like most Eastern woodland people, had a varied and extremely good diet. The forest provided chestnuts, walnuts, beech nuts, they grew multicolored corn and that was their staple. They grew beans, pumpkins, and squashes. 80% of the Eastern woodland native diet came from agriculture. Here are some images of that um, native village, the Wampanoag village. This is a, a bowl of this 
corn porridge. We'll talk a little bit more about that later in the talk. And they also, of course, went into the forest and hunted game and roasted it. In the distance, I see a palisade of wood poles rising out of a hillside. And the path leads me through the gates of a fort. I'm reminded that the, the pilgrims built this settlement in the middle of a Massachusetts winter. It was very cold. In an instant, I find myself in front of a panoramic view of wood cottages spilling down a main street to the waters of Cape Cod Bay. I walk down the street towards the ocean. On both sides of me, along the dirt road are 18 wood structures, including houses, outbuildings, and a large meeting house. There's stark boxes topped by peaked roofs that rise sharply like witches' hats. Wood walls beaten by the sun and wind and the thatch roofs that you can see there give the houses a monochromatic gray wash. In the background, cattle and sheep roam in the fields. There's a strong scent of wood smoke in the air. The scene matches what I would imagine a medieval English village looked like. 